Welcome to Statewide Reports and Conversations from in and around Illinois. I'm Sean Crawford. This hour, we'll discuss the political divide in the state of Illinois. Just look at a map of voting trends and it's easy to see what has created the division and has it gotten worse. Missouri is now allowing sales of recreational cannabis. What impact could that have on Illinois dispensaries near the border? Truck drivers are facing a lot of challenges. The cost of fuel, supply chain issues. We'll get an update on the industry. Younger school kids in Illinois are now required to have recess. How has that impacted the students and the schools? Also, this weekend marks Lincoln's birthday. A new book focuses on black Americans' views of the former president. And Illinois is home to the first town in the U.S. legally founded by an African American. He was born into slavery. The site has now been designated a national park. Those stories and more coming up on Statewide. This is Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Ted McClelland is an editor with Chicago Magazine, but lately he's been focused a lot on other parts of Illinois, primarily what is often referred to as downstate. A recent article he wrote borrows from a phrase some opponents of Illinois' governor used as they put their feelings on yard signs. I won't repeat it, but we have a link to the article at our website. McClellan takes a look at the political divide in Illinois. It's a real geographic split, and he joins us here on Statewide. I have to ask, is this more than just sour grapes by those whose candidates are not winning statewide? Well, it's it's that, but uh, I really feel that, you know, downstate Illinois or, or southern Illinois has been kind of completely marginalized in, in state politics. I, I get the feeling Pritzker is, you know, ruling in the name of the of the Chicago area only. And he's a politician and he knows that, that that's that's where the votes are. You know, he can he can win the seven counties surrounding Chicago and he doesn't really have to worry about the the rest of the the state. So I, I think that uh, people in downstate people in southern Illinois are are really feeling, you know, shut out of the decision making process in Illinois. Use the term in your article place based resentment. I think someone else coined that phrase, but can yeah. you talk about that? What does that mean? It was from a New York Times article by Thomas uh, Edstall, and I, I think he was just talking about how you know people people in rural areas think they're they're, they're looked down on and they're they're ignored uh, by by urban elites, and I think that certainly certainly the feeling um, uh, in Southern Illinois toward Chicago. You brought up some of the issues that have created some of the most most of the vitriol we've heard involving guns, reproductive rights, COVID protocols. Right. There have been stark divisions. But then you turn the tables in your article because you say, you know, what if Darren Bailey had won and he was passing laws that were the antithesis of the policies right. that Governor Pritzker has been pushing? You would you would have this same outcry from uh, from northern Illinois and from the Chicago area especially. Then Chicago would be in the situation of people in, say, someplace like uh, Austin, Texas, or, or Miami, Florida, you know, a, a blue city in a red state. Um, here in Illinois, it's the opposite. Uh, Southern Illinois is a, is a rural area uh, in a blue state, which, you know, may be, may be uh, a less common dynamic than we see in other parts of the country. When you look at the geography of the state, Southern Illinois is parts of it, especially deep Southern Illinois, is closer to Tennessee than it is to Chicago. 
sure. So, it's closer to Mississippi. Right. So you have this uh, maybe more connections to the south than you do uh, some of the you know upper Midwest and places like uh, like Chicago or even beyond there. Is that play a part in this? Geography play a part? Well, I, I mean, I think that's really a, been an eternal uh, factor in Illinois politics. I just finished writing a book about uh, Lincoln and Douglas and how they set aside their rivalry in to uh, save the Union in the Civil War. And during during the debates, Douglas was you know saying, you know, you, you talk abolition here in Northern Illinois, I'm going to trot you down to Egypt, see if you say the same thing in Jonesboro. At that time, the residents in deep Southern Illinois were considered to be more sympathetic to the South. And, and even at the beginning of the Civil War, there was concern that uh, people were going to, in Southern Illinois, were going to join the Confederacy. And so they sent uh, federal troops to occupy Cairo because it was such an important uh, important city. So yeah, I think you know nor- Northern Illinois has always been liberal and Southern Illinois has always been conservative. And so much so, we're actually seeing some movement in certain counties outside of Chicago. So I think it's about two dozen or more counties that are now right. passing resolutions saying, you know, we, we support seceding from the state of Illinois. Uh, right. I don't know that people are taking that seriously, most people, but it does raise a question of what's going on here, doesn't it? Right. Well, it's 27 counties now, and the most recent was Hardin County. And I, I had another article where I suggested we trade southern Illinois uh, to uh, Missouri for St. Louis, because uh, I think it's another one of those blue cities in a red state. So I think I think people would object to southern Illinois becoming its own state because they'd get two, two senators. Uh, they, they would send two Republican senators to Washington, and that would change the balance of power uh, in the Senate. But, you know, perhaps... Uh, they could join a state where you know they they feel more where it's where it's um, easier to get a gun and harder to get an abortion. They they would feel more in tune. What about when it comes to gerrymandering? Because decades of Democrats drawing political maps in Illinois seems to have exacerbated some of the divisions we're seeing, carving up districts to you know benefit one party over the other. And in these cases, it's been Democrats. Has that brought a little bit more extreme politics to the state? Not just from a Democratic side, but maybe certainly from a Republican side as well. Well, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, the, they drew a map uh, that created a, a 14 to 3 Democratic majority in the in the congressional delegation. And, you know, Republicans got, what, 42? They got 42 percent of the votes, even running Darren Bailey. So they're, they seem to be, uh, would seem to be entitled to more seats than that, probably five or six. But, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 cre- it creates... You know, one of the districts they drew, Rodney Davis, who is probably considered a more moderate Republican, ran against Mary Miller, who is a very, you know, Trump-type Republican, and, and, and he lost. This, the Republican districts they created are extremely conservative. Well, I know how people in many parts of what are what's known as downstate Illinois view Chicago, but you're a writer for Chicago Magazine. You live there. How yeah. is the rest of the state viewed by people in Chicago? It's not. I mean, it really isn't. Chicagoans, uh, I mean, people from Chicago, they don't vacation in southern Illinois. Uh, they go to Michigan or, 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 or they go to Wisconsin. Um, I, I don't and, and southern Illinois doesn't really have uh, enough uh, you know, political power to cause any consternation or make life difficult for people in, 
in the big city. So I, I just don't think that uh, that Chicago thinks about Southern Illinois at all, and I don't think that J.B. Pritzker thinks about Southern Illinois much at all, honestly. Now, I, I'm sure if I were to ask the Pritzker administration on this, they would say, hey, we have uh, you know, supported projects in, in different parts of Illinois. I've, I've made trips to different parts of Illinois. I've spent time right. there. You know, they, they would view that differently. Why, uh, why do you feel the way you do? Uh, I, I just think it's, it's just a matter of, of, uh, of political reality. And, you know, and perhaps he is an ambitious uh, Democrat and he wants to you know, impress uh, people on the national Democratic stage who tend to be uh, very liberal. And uh, so I, I think, you know, he wants he wants to have, you know, very liberal, a very liberal pro-choice, uh, you know, anti anti-gun administration, because I imagine that that would um, sort of feed, feed any ambitions he might have beyond the, the state of Illinois. And I don't want to take sides in a in an upstate downstate debate, but from J.B. Pritzker's perspective, I would say, hey, I believe in what I believe, and I'm the one right. that people elected governor. So why should right. I change my beliefs or my policies to benefit those who are completely the opposite of me? Yeah, and one one thing I found interesting was when I looked at the election results, um, he uh, he did worse in in downstate counties. And he did better in in Chicago area counties than he'd done four years ago. So obviously his approach is winning him more fans in the Chicago area and and alienating uh, people outside of the of the Chicago area. I mean, you know, and and, and you know, people. Well, you know, I, I guess I can say you asked me what people uh, think of downstate. I mean, I can say that people in Chicago thought Darren Bailey was just horrifying. Um, as a candidate for governor, and uh, you know, but they just thought he was a ultra conservative and a rube, and uh, he just got absolutely no traction anywhere in the, in this part of the state. One thing that seems to have changed a lot in Illinois politics uh, from even really just a couple of decades ago has been how the suburbs of Chicago have gone. You know, the Collar County has gone much more right. democratic. Used to be that Chicago was heavily democratic. Downstate have become uh, much more uh, Republican, and you know they fought for the suburbs. And actually, in many cases, Republicans were winning out. That isn't the case anymore, and it's really tilted the favor toward Democrats, right? Right. Well, uh, you know, a suburban mayor, a mayor of Evanston, um, said that uh, you know uh, abortion was what drove a lot of you know suburbanites, and probably I'm sure especially suburban women, uh, into the Democratic Party. And, and I'm sure that from the opposite perspective, uh, it drove a lot of uh, down Southern Illinois Democrats who maybe in the past might have been uh, Democratic because, as you, as you were saying, because of you know, union ties to uh, factories and mines uh, toward the uh, Republican Party. I mean, it, I, it, I'm sure this is just uh, what do you want to call it? I mean, I, I lived in central Illinois and did spend some time in southern Illinois, but I'm sure this is just a stereotype. It seems to me that the, the two great motivating passions in Southern Illinois had always been labor militancy and religious fundamentalism. And there's not much labor militancy left. So, you know, Southern, Southern Illinois just sort of followed the other Appalachian regions of the country, the Southern regions of the country from the Democratic Party into the into the Republican Party. It was probably one of the last regions to, to go that way. I mean, I, you, you know, you talk about Remember when Glenn Pichard ran for governor? He was a conservative 
Southern Illinois Democrat, and he swept the region. And even Rod Blagojevich won most of the counties in, in Southern Illinois. But now it's turned completely Republican. So how do we get past this division that's there, uh, or can we? I mean, it's, and I'm not saying that it all falls in one party or the other, but what do you think needs to happen to start to get people to, to come together, close this divide a little bit? I, I don't, I, I just think it's an eternal divide in, in politics. It's like how, you know, how are you ever going to get Massachusetts and Mississippi to agree on anything? You're not. Uh, I think that there's just completely divergent worldviews between Chicago and deep Southern Illinois. And, and as you were saying, because of, because of the changes in, in the state's politics uh, with the suburbs joining the Democratic Party, the Democrats now are in such a, a dominant position, they don't really need to concern themselves with the wishes or the needs of conservative voters in, in Illinois. Ted McClellan is an editor with Chicago Magazine. We've been talking about the political divide in the state of Illinois. You can read his article. There's a link to it at the station's website. Just look for Statewide. In 2021, Illinois lawmakers required at least 30 minutes of recess for kids from kindergarten through fifth grade. That law narrowly passed. Peter Medlin has more on why and how the recess requirements have impacted students and their schools. Fifth grade students at Gregory Elementary in Rockford are running around outside at recess. It's a scene most people are probably familiar with from when they were in elementary school. Kids in puffy winter coats playing all sorts of games and walking around with their friends. Of course, there are classics like basketball. We got a fast break. I'll do the play-by-play here. Pass it up. Shoots. Oh. Who's on the offensive boards? Oh, he saves it. We're going the other way. And some games may be more unique to the creative kids at Gregory Elementary. Sometimes we play a game where somebody is the king or queen or Ooh. royalty of some sort, and we just do things. This, Very is, fun. this is exciting. Do you ever get to be the royalty? Um, I have once, and I got to teach them pig Latin. But then we usually try to resume that. You resume the storyline. Yeah. If we can't resume the original storyline, we just start another. I'm out here with Gregory Elementary principal Christine Leiter. So they get 30 minutes of unstructured play, so just you know, recess time. Correct. They get the 20 minutes outside for recess, and then throughout the day they get an additional 15 minutes. So actually we're doing 35 minutes. You guys feel like that's enough? You wish you had more? More. More. <laughs> the 30-minute recess law passed back in 2021, and this year it's been mandatory for K-5th through grade. Surprisingly, the recess requirement was somewhat divisive. It only passed 60 to 52 in the Illinois House of Representatives. Most of the nays were from Republican lawmakers, but a handful of Democrats voted no, too. That's mostly because they were concerned about two things. One, will schools be able to staff that much recess time? And two, will schools be able to fit that much extra time into an already very structured school day without sacrificing academics? Leiter says they've been able to trim out the time from transitions between subjects. And as for staffing, it's always all hands on deck at schools, but she says that their lunch aides help out for recess. And despite the real challenges fitting more recess into the bell schedule, she says she thinks the extra 15 minutes is a positive, especially after the past few years. They are sitting at their desk doing academics quite a bit of the day, so right. giving them that little time to be kids, play, talk to each other, I think it's beneficial for them social-emotionally yeah. since we lost so much of that during the pandemic. 
Aaron Salberg is the principal at McIntosh Elementary in Rockford. So it definitely was hard to find. But she says the extra recess time is helping students build social skills and work through challenges. They cut the 15 minutes out of their half-hour win time, where teachers work with students on social-emotional skills like conflict resolution. Anytime kids can play and explore um, and just have time for themselves is great. I wish our school day was longer so that we could not feel like we had to give up things that were important to us as far as like win time goes. But overall, I'm, I'm happy about it. I'm happy that kids have time to, to just do kid things. Kid things like drawing or magic tricks. I go to someone, they pick a card, they look at it, I grab it without looking, put it in, do, and do, and then I pull one out from the bottom, and then it's always their card. Have you seen this? Yeah, Is she actually good? done it. Yeah, it's pretty good. you seen one. the card tricks? She, she, yeah. she does. If you're worried that fifth graders spend their recess on TikTok, well, the 2021 recess law forbids students from using devices like cell phones and tablets at recess, and it also prohibits schools from taking away recess as a punishment, which was pretty common before. And as for worries that recess cuts too much into learning time, research has shown that physical activity can actually reduce anxiety and help students stay focused when they're in class. And now recess is over. The fifth graders are lining up to head back inside. And thanks to the 2021 law, they'll be back outside tomorrow to play more basketball, do more card tricks, and pick up the storyline from yesterday's games. I'm Peter Medlin. Just ahead, a site in West Central Illinois has been designated a national park. We'll learn more about it next on Statewide. Stay right here. This is Statewide. Coming up, the trucking industry faces a lot of challenges. We'll hear about those and how the industry is adapting. But next, the National Park Service has given national park designation to the site of the first town legally founded by an African-American. New Philadelphia in West Central Illinois marked a stop on the Underground Railroad in the mid-19th century, and it remained an active town until 1885. Farrah Anderson spoke to the great-great-grandson of the town's founder. Gerald McWhorter, a professor in African-American studies at the University of Illinois, grew up hearing stories about his great-great-grandfather, Frank McWhorter. Free Frank was born into slavery and later bought his own freedom, in 1836, he became the first free African-American to found and register his own town, named New Philadelphia. As Gerald grew up, he says he began to understand the significance of his ancestors' story, not just for his own family, but for the entire country. I mean, we grew up with the story that uh, freedom seekers, if you could get to New Philadelphia, you could get a pair of shoes, you could get a horse, and those McWhorter boys would help you get to Canada. Gerald and his wife, Kate Williams, also a professor at the U of I, wrote a book in 2018 about New Philadelphia. But the story starts over 30 years earlier. You have to start in 1988 with the uh, recognition of Frank's grave. Then you have to think about the New Philadelphia Association was founded 26 years ago. So it's been a long process of gradually building up uh, recognition until finally becoming a national park. It's important to mention that there are 424 national parks in the United States. Only 33 directly connect to the African-American experience. And of all the national parks in the country, only three are in Illinois. Gerald says New Philadelphia proves how integral Black people were in helping members of their own community get to freedom. 
Think of yourself as a freedom seeker. Now, here you are moving through the countryside and you don't know people. You don't know who is who. And you come to a town, who would you be looking for? If it was me, I'd be looking for other black people. So when you think about the map, the Underground Railroad is connecting wherever black people were living. And so I think the more we dig into the history, using New Philadelphia as an example, uh, we'll find the value of so many other places and so many other families. So that the story of freedom is not only a story of people who are helping black people, it's black people themselves active and engaged uh, in the freedom journey. Gerald says New Philadelphia's significance is best understood by a poem, which helped inspire him and others to keep working on the project over the past three decades. They ran, they helped others run. They bought, they fought a town, a law, and they lived free. The history of New Philadelphia paints a portrait of what the future of the United States could look like. People from all walks of life working together to create a better nation. If New Philadelphia was possible, then maybe this country is possible. It was an integrated community. Frank owned the town. He was selling lots to get money to free his family from slavery. So everybody living there knew what the deal was. So this was an abolitionist village. And this is two decades or more before the Civil War. So if that experience was possible, then maybe the whole country is possible. That's Gerald McWhorter speaking with Farrah Anderson. They were talking about New Philadelphia, which is Illinois' newest national historic site. That site is located two miles east of Barrie in west-central Illinois. It was given national park status in December and is now one of only 33 national historic sites dedicated to African-American history in the U.S. Reparation efforts in urban areas are gaining national attention, but Cassidy Arena with KBIA News in Columbia, Missouri, reports some rural areas are taking steps to right historic wrongs. On the busy corner of Lafayette and Dunklin Streets in Jefferson City, there are unraked lawns, a parking lot, and a tennis court. But it used to be a booming black commercial area with hotels, stores, and restaurants. 70-year-old Glover Brown used to live there. It was a home. It was a workplace. It was entertainment. And when I say that, it was for the black community. Due to urban renewal efforts in the 50s and 60s, their family was forced out of the area known as the Foot District. And it came through Jefferson City like uh, a storm coming over the horizon. The safety net the Brown family had built was gone. Brown says they then moved to an area with intense racism, including an explosive being thrown at their house. And now, decades later, Glover and his brother Arthur are making sure this history, their history, won't be forgotten. They recently got the Foot District designated as an official historic legacy district, and the city commissioned a plaque on the district's border. Glover says when a municipality recognizes an injustice and attempts to correct a past wrong, that's reparations. Although he commends the city, he says what's happening in Jefferson City and the Foot District right now might not fit a definition of reparations. Reparations could mean a couple of different things. Jokingly, we're still waiting on our 40 acres and a mule. And Glover's thoughts about what reparations means is a microcosm of the same larger conversation around the country. 
St. Louis has been working toward financial reparations on a citywide level with involvement and support from its first black female mayor, Tashara Jones. It's worth noting, Jefferson City has never had a black mayor. Including in relation to what reparations is, we need to talk more about transformative justice. That's Jeff Ward. He's the director of the Wash U and Slavery Project at Washington University in St. Louis. I think the term is partly avoided now because it's not clear what it means to many people. And it means different things to different people. We're going to see pretty soon, I think, a lot of grappling with that question of the meaning of reparations. Ward and others say a vital first step in achieving reparations is for a state to formally apologize for its involvement in slavery. Of the 18 slave states, Missouri is one of nine that has not apologized. Ward says people in St. Louis and Kansas City, where both mayors are Black, may feel more comfortable pushing for financial reparations, partially because of that political representation. Ayana Shivers is a test of that question in a rural area. She became Mexico, Missouri's first Black female mayor in 2019. It's about the power. And for true reparations to take place, there would have to be an exchange. And so my mindset is, don't ask somebody to give up their power because that's like, you know, you asking a person when they're in the playoffs to give up their playbook to the opposing team. So Shivers and other Black community leaders started making their own changes. There are free tutoring programs, a city sustainability project, and other nonprofits to support Black communities as they thrive. You know, some of it is understanding we deserve the 40 acres in a mule and that to access it, we may not be able to wait on someone to hand it to us. We'll just have to acquire the skill set to do it ourselves. Shivers says small-town efforts like these are reparations and can be just as impactful as those in big cities. I'm Cassidy Arena, KBIA News. Missouri's Department of Health started approving recreational marijuana licenses recently, and as St. Louis area shops open, Missouri residents can forego driving across state lines to buy cannabis in the Metro East in Illinois. Will Bauer examines what that means for Illinois cities and dispensaries. There's a number of reasons why St. Louisans say they may want to skip out on Metro East dispensaries and opt for a shop in their hometown. One, the proximity two, the taxes, and three, supporting local businesses. I would like to see my, my vices be somehow spun productively. That's Logan, a St. Louis resident. He asked to be identified by just his first name because it's still illegal to cross state lines. So, yeah, I, I just want to I want to support that industry, especially if it's helping support other social programs and stuff. He's one of those St. Louisans who made trips to the Metro East every few months for marijuana. Now he says he's excited to see what local options he has on the west side of the river. Crystal, another St. Louisan who also asked to only use her first name, says cheaper taxes in Missouri is another factor. The taxes for Illinois cannabis are outrageous, in my opinion, especially from comparing them to other western coast states. She's originally from California. When she traveled home to see friends or family, she would occasionally bring some cannabis back because Illinois' taxes were pricey. One of the stores who hopes to benefit from the new recreational business is Good Day Farms. And then you have the 5 by 7 ones, and what we're doing too is making sure that we're highlighting our medical patients still and really kind of... Vice President of Marketing Amy Daly is talking supplies and strategy for opening day with her employees. Good Day has five locations in the St. Louis area where they're currently just selling medical marijuana. 
CEO Ryan Herget says they're hoping to compete for everyone's business. Illinois has got you know higher taxes than Missouri, so we expect traffic from Illinois. So we feel like it, you know, the Good Day stores are a very attractive place to shop, whether you live in Missouri or anywhere else. Illinois taxes recreational marijuana at six and a quarter percent to start, but they can go up to 16 and a quarter. Missouri has a flat tax of 6%. Local cities can also add an additional tax. Metro East towns like Collinsville, Fairview Heights, and Sojay say they're prepared to see sales tax revenues shrink. Fairview Heights Mayor Mark Kupski says that's something his city expected. We anticipated that as cannabis grows and more places start to offer it, that we would see some decrease in sales tax over time. So it's been built into our long-term plan. Fairview Heights has set aside half the sales tax revenue for funding their police department's pension. The other half will be used for paying off the city's debt and will sit in the general fund. In all, Fairview Heights has made nearly $1 million from the sales tax generated by their dispensary, Ascend. Meanwhile, few cities have benefited as much from recreational marijuana as Collinsville, home to the state's most profitable dispensary, another Ascend location. Collinsville City Manager Mitch Baer says the $1.5 to $2 million in sales tax has been beneficial for his city, especially when cash flows weren't certain. They did great revenues during the pandemic, so really what it did was it allows us to get through the pandemic and not worry about funding for those services that the revenue streams went down over those two years. The other revenue in Collinsville has been set aside for capital improvements and doesn't have a home quite yet. Ascend declined to comment for this story. Officials with Beyond Hello, the dispensary that has two locations in Sojay, could not be reached for comment. But Sojay's mayor, Rich Sojay Jr., says the dispensary has also been good for his village. While we have the money now, long term, I don't know if that's a if it's going to be there. So, you know, I hope it is. Sojay most recently funneled the hundreds of thousands in sales tax toward the city's police department. Sojay Jr. says they've retained a solid staff with the extra cash and signed a new contract with the department's union. Sojay Jr., Kupski in Fairview Heights, and Bear in Collinsville say they'll all keep a close eye on how recreational sales perform in Missouri. For Bear, recreational sales continues to be a curious subject. We're living through just a real social experiment right now as to how the business model plays out and how uh, competition, quite frankly, will impact those established dispensaries and businesses are already in place and uh, legalized states like Illinois. What was once a destination product is now becoming more readily available. What happens next for Metro East Towns will be a waiting game. In Collinsville, I'm Will Bauer. The Midwest Truckers Association's Executive Vice President Don Schaefer says the industry has coped with a lot of changes and challenges over that time, including a driver shortage, rising fuel costs, and delays in the supply chain. Reporter Joe Deacon talks with Schaefer about some of those issues, including a push to make trucking more climate-friendly. I think everyone agrees that sooner or later we're going to be at that point where we're going to be looking at alternative fuels as uh, the means to move most of the nation's goods. And I mean... Does that mean that uh, trucks are all going to go, you know, electric? We don't know. You know, the federal government has a goal. They're working with the truck manufacturers to develop what they would call, you know, a clean truck. It's very logical because I think just like everything else, we know that uh, carbon-based fuels are here, but they're, you know, being phased out. How has the trucking industry worked to address a shortage of drivers and other related employment issues? Number one issue in the trucking industry is finding good drivers and finding drivers, period, because, you know, the laws have gotten stricter and, and for the better from a safety standpoint, much stricter in regards to areas of drug and alcohol testing. But even more so is the demand. 
We don't have enough trucks. We don't have enough drivers. We don't have enough mechanics. All of them play a part in terms of, you know, moving everything. And uh, the industry is looking at a couple of pronged efforts. Training, uh, working more closely with the community colleges, for example, here in Illinois. You know, I dare say that anyone comes out of a community college program pretty much is guaranteed a job, no matter where they go. Recruitment's always interesting because, you know, who do you recruit to be a truck driver? The problems you deal with there is the fact that, in, you know, an interstate truck driver, they have to be 21 to cross state lines. There's a discussion on the federal level to change that, to move that down maybe to 18 and give that opportunity to younger people. A lot of people in the industry think that's a good idea because we lose so many people who could potentially become a truck driver because of the fact that you get out of high school. Well, how old are you? 18. What do you want to do? Well, I'd like to be a truck driver. Well, come back when you're 21. So in the meantime, between 18 and 21, they learn another trade. And we've lost them. By the time they're 21, we'll never get them. What kind of salary can the average truck driver expect to make? Well, you know, it's all across the board. It depends on what you're hauling, who you're hauling for. It depends on what kind of credentials you have. Do you want to be long haul? Do you want to be short haul, be home every night? Do you want to haul hazardous materials? The demand is there that has pushed the salary level way up. It's not uncommon for, you know, someone to be dangled, you know, fresh out of school. Uh, hey, I'm going to put you to work for $60,000, you know, and, and that's just coming out of school. There are drivers who are good drivers who have uh, good experience, a, a good safety record, who are making $120,000. Over the past year or so, we've seen significant increases in fuel costs and the per-gallon price of diesel rising. The industry has learned to deal with fluctuation in fuel prices by implementing a fuel surcharge based on a number that's put out every Monday afternoon at 3 o'clock. And a company uses that as a benchmark. The industry has also dealt very much so with how do you get better fuel mileage. You know, for a truck that maybe gets six miles to the gallon, if you were to get a half mile per gallon improvement, and how you drive, you know, that's 17, 18%. We've all heard about supply chain problems increasing since the onset of COVID-19. Have you noticed any improvement in this area, or do you see it as a continuing issue for a while now? Supply chain is not just on trucking. It goes from the ship that goes from China to Long Beach, California, where it hops on a train. It comes to Joliet, for example, where it's uploaded, offloaded, I should say, those containers. Uh, then a truck picks them up and takes them five, 600 miles in a region in the Midwest. you got to have each one of those modes of transportation working. All these different modes of transportation have all been challenged in the last three years by COVID. And they're all just at the point now of digging out. There's a little bit of light at the end of the tunnel right now, I think. We're starting to see it. Things are improving. That's Midwest Truckers Association Executive Vice President Don Schaefer, and he spoke with Joe Deacon. This is Statewide. We're back on Statewide. I'm Sean Crawford. Abraham Lincoln is one of the most written about people in history, but no book has focused exclusively on what black Americans have said about the great emancipator until now. Rich Egger talked to the two people who put together the new collection. The book is Knowing Him by Heart, African Americans on Abraham Lincoln. Fred Lee Horde and Matthew Norman edited the collection. 
Ford is an emeritus full professor in Africana Studies at Knox College. Norman is an associate professor of history at the University of Cincinnati Blue Ash College. Hoard says the book includes greatly varied views of Lincoln over a lengthy period of time. You know, going from 1858 to just after the first uh, election of Barack Obama, 2010, we cover more than a century and a half. Well, and I, I think what's what's great about the book, as Fred said, is the the breadth. And when we started the project, we did not have an agenda beyond just finding as much as we could regarding African-American voices on Lincoln. And so in the book, you'll find uh, very positive, uncritical views of Lincoln. You'll find very uh, negative views on Lincoln. And then you'll find a lot of nuanced views. Was there anything, uh, as you researched uh, this book, uh, was there anything you came across that uh, surprised you? I would just say that when when Fred and I started the project over 10 years ago, I, I don't think we knew just how how much we would find. And and I don't know if that's necessarily surprising, but just the, the breadth and depth of, of black voices on Lincoln, I think, was something that was eye-opening for, for both of us. We left out a lot. We did not include absolutely yeah, everything yeah, that we uncovered. Yeah. And one thing, uh, pending uh, just a short comment to what Matt is saying, one thing that we tried uh, with some uh, success and with some frustration is to include not just what is known as the major voices in African-American history in that period, but the folks who uh, sometimes are called common folks, underclass, uh, who had real feelings and, and they all didn't know just Lincoln, you know, by heart. The other thing which really uh, drove us up some kind of proverbial wall, uh, but we tried, and uh, in the second edition, maybe we'll do even better. But that was making sure that we had a fair representation of women who were virtually absent in terms of publications when we started. And really, for the most of that century, uh, you can find very few things, even in little newspapers, by uh, black women. A few things, but, but not a lot. Do either of you have a favorite speech or piece of writing that's included in this book? Mine would be, and Matt and I have talked about this, so I'm hoping I'm not talking early, but mine would be um, the Douglas speech I think it's 1876 that he does, and you see both sides of how he feels about it. And, and it's a speech where he's got national figures in attendance, and he mm -hmm. is both critical and supportive of Lincoln. But you get much of what Douglas, we have more pieces by Douglas in that book, I think, than anybody else. But yeah. that particular thing... I think if one read that uh, as kind of a, a contextual thing, even though that's 18 years after where we start the book, uh, it would be one way to, to approach the book. It's really hard to, to pick one. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff from Douglas, and I, uh, and I agree with Fred that the piece from 1876 is, is very important. I guess my personal favorite from Douglas is something that's not not as well known, 
And it's from his papers in the Library of Congress. It's a draft of a speech that Douglas was working mm-hmm. on in 1865. Mm-hmm. And he talks about uh, Lincoln's death and what it means and speculates on what Lincoln would have done if he had not been mm-hmm. assassinated. And in this in this fragment, Douglas talks about Right before Lincoln was assassinated, he advocated limited black voting rights. And Douglas says in this speech, well, you have to keep in mind that Lincoln began his life as a rail splitter. And when you split rails, you you use a, a wedge. And you begin with the thin edge of the wedge. And as the log uh, splits, you turn the wedge over and you use the thick edge. And Douglas says that's exactly what Lincoln was doing with black voting rights, that he began with a very modest proposal of limited suffrage. But Douglas believed that if Lincoln had lived to fulfill his second term in office, he would have broadened that. Matthew Norman was joined by Fred Lee Horde and talking about the book Knowing Him by Heart. They edited the collection of speeches, letters, and other meditations by African Americans on Abraham Lincoln. It includes more than 200 pieces, some of them from well-known African American historians, poets, activists, and more, and some by lesser-known black Americans. Rich Egger reporting. When COVID hit and Illinois prisons limited visitors, teachers and professors could not get inside for their classes. They did what everyone was forced to do, turn to online learning. That also created a path for students leaving prison to stay enrolled. Anna Sapchinko reports on one woman who's been taking prison classes from the outside. At about noon on Mondays, Maria Garza logs on to Zoom. She joins a class with a dozen other students all sitting together. She's the only one dialing in from home. Her laptop is on the kitchen stove. She pulls out a stack of plastic cups. What I'm going to do is set up these 10 cups, right? Garza is prepping for a chemistry experiment. She fills up the cups with things like borax and ammonia to test their acidity. Using cabbage juice, she boiled the night before as indicator. So all my stuff is brown. Did, did you anybody get a purple? We, we get the colors, Maria. Y'all got purple and green and blue? Yeah. Really? Garza and her classmates are in Northwestern University's prison education program. It's for incarcerated women to get their college degrees. It's extremely rare. According to the Corrections Department, less than 1% of the people incarcerated in Illinois are enrolled in higher education programs, and only a handful are dialing into classes after release. Before Garza left prison about a year ago, she sat in the same classroom as her peers at the Logan Correctional Facility. There, they took classes in English, math, and art history. And as she neared her release date, she was excited to leave prison, but not her classes. Once I didn't make it out, we you know, fought to see how I can stay in. Maria was, was, I think, our first student who came home. We didn't even know at the time that IDOC would allow students to continue by Zooming in. Jennifer Lackey directs the prison education program in which Maria Garza is a student. She says there were some hurdles to overcome before Garza could continue her education after release. For starters, people on the outside need clearance to communicate with people inside, so the Department of Corrections had to approve her. Then there was the technology. Actually, this was really caused by the pandemic. Alyssa Williams oversees programming for Illinois prisons. 
So we worked with some of our university and college partners to be able to bring in smart televisions and D10 devices and laptops. Prior to that, that was not part of our curriculum. Blackie said the video conferencing equipment was game-changing. Once that became a possibility, the kind of parameters of reentry support shifted in that moment. North Park Theological Seminary in Chicago's Albany Park neighborhood runs a higher ed program at Logan and at Stateville, a prison about 40 miles from Chicago. So far, we've had four students be released. Vicki Reddy directs North Park's program. Their students who have left prison continue their studies in person on North Park's campus. But Reddy says the stigma around crime and incarceration hangs over the students who have just left prison. Like all it takes is for one person to come out and, and screw up in some way and it will mess everything up because we look at the one, not at the, you know, everyone else who's doing amazing. Back in her kitchen, Garza with her laptop on her stove and her liquids that are still not turning into the right colors, says she's found strength in staying connected with her friends. How does it feel, you know, now that you're out but you're logging back in twice a week? I know, right? Um, to me, it's kind of like a comfort. She said some people detach themselves from prison once they leave. But um, it's hard to like detach yourself from the people that understand what you're going through. She thinks it helps them too, to stay connected to the world and to see one of their peers making it on the outside and getting a degree. On the Safshunka WBEZ News. An Illinois teen created a nonprofit that educates youth, and she's only getting started. Yvonne Booz has her story. Sophia Lippman is the founder and CEO of X Time. In math, I learned that X is kind of this value that's constantly changing. And so when coming up with X Time, I was like, oh, um, our activities are continuously changing. We're hoping for children to be able to learn about a lot of different activities. X Time serves as a learning resource for children. Lipman started the company during the pandemic when she was only in eighth grade. She says she was in the house reflecting on the days she participated in outside activities. Then she realized she wasn't the only one missing out. She tried to figure out a way to help other children engage in educational activities from home. It kind of came to me and I shared it with my parents um, and they were so supportive. I talked to them and then just from there, I kind of started my outreach, creating a website, which was all new to me. And just through the process, I've learned new steps um, about kind of how to set up a nonprofit. Lipman's brother helped her with the website, but she says there were other challenges. It was really hard to one, recruit volunteers, um, just like the amount of outreach that was needed, but then also kind of learn how to apply um, for X time to be a 501c3 nonprofit, because we've learned that a lot of people um, are almost more interested in helping if you are that 501c3 nonprofit. Lipman started out by offering free online classes. She solicited teachers, professors, and businesses in the Champaign-Urbana area to help lead classes. Lipman also received help from her classmates. The online sessions continued for about a year and a half, and from there, the nonprofit began to offer in-person classes and summer camps. The classes took place at park districts, libraries, and community events. Lipman then thought of something else. In my community, I started seeing so many little free libraries pop up, actually, and I thought it was such a great resource um, filled with books. And so when I first started, I really had my heart set on having this 
standing structure with not only books, but other engaging educational materials. Rick Brooks, now of Princeton, Illinois, and the late Todd Bowl came together in Wisconsin in 2009 to create these book sharing posts. You can now find them all over the globe. Lipman calls her renditions of this concept Explore Stations. These fixtures offer educational activities for children to explore. Lipman says her goal is to reach underserved youth. The first station opened at the Martin Center in Champaign. Lipman meets with community organizers to keep her up to speed in the nonprofit world. I've met with um, the CEO of the Community Foundation of East Central Illinois. I've talked with some people from the United Way, um, a few local food banks, Habitat for Humanity, and then also I've had a lot of meetings with the University of Illinois. Lipman says during one of the meetings, a suggestion came up for putting stations in hospitals. She visited Chicago's Lurie Children's Hospital in December and provided X-Time materials. These Explore stations are mobile. She says the mobility allows the stations to travel to and from different rooms. Lipman's idea was expanded from downstate Illinois to places like Ohio, New York, Indiana, and California. I had a chance to do a summer program where I met someone from California, and so now he's helping. A few of my friends moved um, who live elsewhere, and so they've come on board. Um, and it's, it's really amazing because everyone has so many different connections. Her goal is to have stations across all 50 states and perhaps across the world. Lemon is now a junior in high school. College is on her mind, but she isn't sure what she wants to major in. She says she is interested in social entrepreneurship, but whatever she chooses to study, she says she will focus on X time throughout college and beyond. I'm Yvonne Boos. And we're out of time for Statewide this week. Thanks for being with us and join us next time for more reports and conversations from in and around Illinois. You can find all of our episodes at this station's website. Just look for Statewide. Our weekly podcast can be found through the NPR One app. Statewide is a production of NPR Illinois with help from other Illinois Public Radio stations.